We're continuing a summer sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit. I know this may seem like it's just gone on and on and on, but there are nine of these, and today we come to the fruit of gentleness. And Paul writes this to the churches in the region of Galatia. By contrast, he writes, and he's talking about a life of um, unholiness, a life without God, and he says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. The word of the Lord. Now think with me for a moment. Who is the most gentle person you know? Who would that be? The most gentle person in your entire life. For me, it would be my Aunt Gladys, my grandmother's sister, so she's my great aunt, never married. They used to call them uh, in the old days, old maids. What a terrible term. She never married, lived in the old home place of my great-grandparents. So she was born and raised and lived in the home she'd always been in all of her life. Lived till she was 96 years old, never went in the hospital, never had a child, never had an illness, was never in the hospital until her last two weeks. And, and uh, what a wonderful lady she was. Every time I was around Aunt Gladys, I, I wanted to be a better person. In fact, when I was around her, I was a better person. Those kind of people make you want to rise to the occasion. She sang in the choir. She studied her Bible. It was always next to her uh, placemat for her morning devotions. Never saw her angry. Never saw her rude. Never heard her say one ill thing. Is, is the mic now working? Hey, look at that. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I'll just turn this thing off or not. All right, so where was I? I never saw her or heard her in any way take the oxygen out of the room for herself. She was never overbearing. She was always gentle. You know somebody like my Aunt Gladys, I'm sure. Kind, gentle, loving, compassionate people. If Paul is trying to tell us what God is like here, and I think he is, I don't think he just chose nine words off the cuff. He thought about these words. What is God like? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness. He chose the word gentleness. Is God gentle? In Jesus Christ, we saw the character of God. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He's this unique being that is fully divine and yet fully human. We can't explain it. The skeptic would never believe it. 
This odd combination of person, unique to any other human being, fully human, born of Mary, fully divine, conceived by the Holy Spirit. In Jesus Christ, we see the personality of God. We see what we could be like as humans if we lived into Christ and Christ lived into us. And this is the will of God for us because Christ came to show us our potential as human beings. So where have we seen Jesus be gentle? It's ironic that Mary Kay chose the uh, children's sermon today about Jesus saying, let the children come to me. She didn't read my sermon. She didn't know this. But the first place I thought of when I thought, where have I seen Jesus be gentle was this story. The context of it makes it extremely uh, valuable. He's on his way to Jerusalem, the third year of his ministry, his last trip to, his, to the Passover. Jeru- uh, Jericho is an oasis, some of you have been there, in the middle of the wilderness. Literally like a circle of palm trees right in the middle of brown, dry desert. You pass through Jericho to get to Jerusalem, and Jesus and his disciples and his entire band of disciples are on their way to the Passover in Jerusalem for his, what he knows will be his trial, his death, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. So this is a very important time in the life of Jesus. After three years of ministry, he's like a rock star. Everywhere he goes, the Bible says, he can't even go into cities because the crowds gather to touch him, to see him, because they know, they've heard. He's raised people from the dead. He has cured lepers. He can touch me and change my life. And so they would line up on the sides of the road and wait for him to come by in hopes that he might touch them or speak to them or say something that would change their life. And on this day, he's going through Jericho. He's on his way to his trial, to his, to his crucifixion, to the resurrection, to the redemption of all humankind. And here's the story you know so well. Then little children were being brought to him in order that he might lay hands on them and pray. And the disciples spoke sternly to those who brought them. Now that's just like the church, you know. Jesus has got one agenda, we've got another one. It's been going on for decades. And so the disciples are like, you don't need to bring those children. He's busy. Don't you know he's headed to Jerusalem for the redemption of all humankind? He's headed to his trial, to his crucifixion, and to the resurrection, which will be remembered for thousands and thousands of years. He's too busy to see you. And then the Bible says, but Jesus said. I love those three words. It happens all the time. The disciples say one thing, and then the Bible says, but Jesus said. Thank God for but Jesus said. Let the little children come to me and do not stop them. And then he adds this caveat. For it is to such as these that the kingdom of heaven belongs. Oh, those are heavy words. 
In another place, he'll say, unless you become like a child. He didn't say childish. Unless you become like a child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Unless you come to this place where you reclaim some innocence in your life. Where you know spontaneous joy. Where you give love and receive love. Where you are dependent on your heavenly father. Unless you become like that, you're going to miss heaven's goal. And he laid his hands on them and he went on his way. You know what? It occurred to me, you'll never read a story about a Roman emperor stopping for children. Have you ever heard such a thing? And then Julius Caesar got out of his chariot and said, oh, let the children... No, mm -mm, not going to happen. Now, you might see a presidential candidate kiss a baby. But it doesn't last long. I can see Jesus in the middle of the road with throngs of people around him, kneeling down and all the children running to him with their spontaneous love and joy. And I can almost see him laughing and touching them and playing with them. And what a gift they gave to him on his way to the cross. Children. Reminding him of what heaven's like. And in this story, we see the gentleness of God. To allow your busy agenda to be interrupted by children, some would see as a sign of weakness, and yet we're seeing a different kind of power here, a different kind of vulnerability, humility, openness to the life of another. We see it in Christ. We've never forgotten this story, ever. Can you imagine, of all the stories you could remember, we remember Jesus saying, let children come to me. It tells us something about who God is and who we can be. When you're gentle, there's no room for aggression. There's no room for forceful, domineering, overbearing behavior. When you're gentle, there's no room for harsh judgment, for hatred, for violence, for discrimination, or for pride. Do you think this world could use the fruit of gentleness. It's interesting when Paul writes to the Corinthians, that famous passage, probably read at many of your weddings, 1 Corinthians 13, and Corinth was like Las Vegas in its day, um, kind of a wild city. And uh, they had, uh, they talked a lot about love, but their love was not the kind of love that Paul was talking about. So he writes this definition of love to Las Vegas. Another kind of love. And in his writings, he said, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. So the flip side of this negativity would be the word gentle. Somehow, gentleness is woven into the very word of love itself. And Jesus showed us his gentleness when he stopped for the children. There were times that Jesus was not gentle. We've got to be honest about this. 
There were times he was direct, especially with the Pharisees. He'd call them a pack of snakes, not a way to get new members to join the church. He was a courageous human being. When you study him and look at his confrontations to authority who had twisted the relationship with God so much that it was hardly recognizable, this angered Jesus to the point that just a few days from the children, he would be in Jerusalem and one of the first things he would do is go into the temple and turn over the tables of the money changers, those making profit off of God's house. And he did it in anger. He wasn't gentle. So it strikes me there's a time for anger. There's a time to be angry at injustice. There's a time to to be angry when things are unethical and wrong and when human life is not valued. It's time to be angry then. And it's time for confrontation and direct talk. And you can't always be a little butterfly lighting on the flowers in the garden gently as the dew falls from the sky. And yet I remember what he said about the log and the speck. Do you remember that? He said this, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye? When you have a log in your own. This is a cartoon, by the way. It's kind of funny looking. A neighbor has a little teeny speck and you're standing in the cartoon with two logs hanging out of your eye. Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye. First, take the log out of your own eye. This sounds like he's talking to kindergartners. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Listen, if I do the hard work of dealing with my log, you know what your log is? You know the things that have been blocking you up, some of you for years, the same demons you wrestle with over and over and over again, the kind of temptations you deal with, the sort of um, the lack of maturity that's in your life. These are your logs. And when I do the introspective work on my own log, as painful as that is, when I finally come to the truth about my log, and when I'm honest about it, and when I finally dig into my own eyes and pull it out with all the pain that's, that's in that process, when I deal with the speck in yours, I'm going to be a lot more gentle. Why? Because I know how painful it is to deal with one's sins and mistakes and inadequacies because I have first dealt with mine. Oh, Jesus is telling us something here about gentleness. Be very gentle when you stick your fingers in the eye of your neighbor. And yet we use ice picks and we, we use vengeance and we use language that is harsh and foul. And we go after those specks 
with all of our power and energy as if some way to show that we know that's a speck and we know it needs to be fixed and yet if you had dealt with your own log first you'd be a lot more gentle in dealing with the speck in your neighbor. Jesus deals with our specks and he deals with our logs, but he does it with a value on the quality of human life. It reminds me of yet another time I saw his gentleness. Remember the woman who was caught in the act of adultery? It's a story that almost didn't make the Bible. It kind of eked its way into John's gospel. And it's one of the most powerful stories. If it had been left out, it would have been a sin. They caught her, the Bible says, in the very act of adultery, which means the man was there. But somehow they let the man go. I always found that interesting. Because the Bible says the man and the woman shall be stoned to death. That's in Leviticus. I always am interested when people say, I believe every word in the Bible is true. And my response is, one, have you read it? And two, I hope not. Because that's a harsh law in Leviticus. And so somehow the, the guy's been released and they bring the woman to Jesus. He's on the teaching steps of Jerusalem overlooking, you can see Bethlehem from those steps. And there he's teaching uh, in the morning as rabbis would do. And they bring her and interrupt his agenda. And they said, look, we caught this woman in the act of adultery. The law says she should be stoned. What say you? Now, here's the trap of it, because they could care less about this woman. They actually could care less about the law, or they would have brought the man. So the trap of it is, if you say stoner and you're a lawkeeper, all of your followers will abandon you. If you say don't stoner in the name of mercy and grace, you're a lawbreaker, and we've got you. Either way, Jesus, you lose. It's an interesting trap. This is where Jesus says the line, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now this is brilliant because it says from the oldest down, the elders dropped their rocks. I think the eldest dropped his stone because he'd lived the longest and had the most sins in the bag. And he was like, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 we're not going there. And then the next one and the next one and the next one until they were all gone. And here's the gentle part. Jesus turns to this woman. It says he straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? I mean, you're obviously guilty. And she said, "Uh, No one, sir. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. And now he puts the vice on her, the vice grip. He says, go your way. And from now on, do not sin again. That's the key. In other words, Margaret, this isn't, you know, indulgence. I'm not, I'm not just some guy who thinks everything's okay. I don't. I think there are things that destroy human life, and adultery is one of them. I'm not condoning your sin, Margaret. I'm condoning you. 
I'm not saying what you did is acceptable in the life of the human community. I'm saying you are. And in his gentleness, in her brokenness, he reconciled her to God. And he said, look, Margaret, go and don't live like this anymore. I have so much more life for you than the way you've been living. Go and live your potential, Margaret. Go and be who God created you to be. Get away from this stuff that's killing you and your family and your children and, and your reputation. Margaret, go home. A different woman. There's a gentleness the way Jesus stands with her because one, they didn't, he shouldn't be talking to a woman. Women were property. They were second class, third class, fourth class citizens. Nobody values a woman like Jesus. And Jesus is standing with her against the male elders of Israel. This is radical. And in his gentleness, he embraces her. Where are they? Hmm. You know, he's playing with her. He knows where they are. They're gone. And he says, where are they, Margaret? Oh, I don't know. Anybody here to condemn you? No. Nope. I don't either. I'd rather see you healed than stoned. By the law... Jesus could have stepped back and allowed the aggression to happen. And by grace, he didn't let it happen. There's somebody you know today who deserves to be stoned? Sure there is. Some sister, brother, partner, wife, husband, probably a lot of husbands. He stands with us in our most vulnerable places. Even against the authority of Scripture, I would dare to say this. Even against his own Bible, he stood with her and said, I know what the law says, but I know who you are and who you can be. And he set her free. It's gentleness. Inclusive, embracing, and graceful, and reconciling, and compassionate. And listen, folks, this isn't easy work. If it was, it wouldn't need to be a fruit of the Spirit. You could just do it yourself. But we can't do it ourselves. We have this fruit, this Spirit of God. The gentleness of Jesus dwells in you. It does. What if we could debate our differences with more gentleness in our country right now? Would that make us weaker people? If we had more value for all human life as we address the issues we're facing as a nation, that we valued a human life higher than we might value the issue itself? What kind of presidential election would we have if gentleness were a fruit on the table? And how would the fruit of gentleness affect the way we practice law or medicine or teach in a classroom or the way we run our business? That everyone in our company is more valuable than the profit itself. Gentleness.
Could gentleness change a marriage? A marriage that all of the Teflon has worn off and now we're down to metal on metal. You ever seen those? Sparks are flying and erosion is happening at such a rapid rate. We're not sure this marriage is going to make it. What if that turned around like this woman turned around? What, what if gentleness were to be the way you dealt with your husband? In spite of what he's done. Or if gentleness was the way you dealt with your wife. I wonder how it would affect the way your children see marriage. And then it strikes me, how would gentleness change a church? This church. How would Richmond see us if we were known as the gentle, loving, compassionate, embracing, forgiving, inclusive church? I got near the end of this sermon and I thought, well... I could use a large salad with this fruit on it, me personally. Because, and this is a confession, sometimes in my quest to make things better, and I'm always wanting things to be better, I can eliminate the fruit of gentleness from my diet. Plowing full steam ahead to you can become callous to the needs of people around you. But to be gentle is to be receptive and open and aware of the moment that you share with those others as you're on your way to perfection. And in the name of progress, we can become gentle deficient. I think that's a disease. We can win the race of progress, but at what cost? In Christ, we see the personality of God. And Paul writes in Ephesians, I pray that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant that you may be strengthened in your inner being with power through his spirit and that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith as you are being rooted and grounded in love. So in other words, there is an infusion in human life with the very nature and personality of Jesus Christ himself through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what the Bible teaches. So the gentleness of Christ can be your gentleness and my gentleness as Christ dwells in me more richly. See, there's something extremely valuable about this fruit. Paul didn't just sling out nine words. He thought about this stuff. If you took the word gentleness out of the world, who would want to live in it? It wouldn't be fit for God or us. There would be raw, aggressive power, chronic busyness, lack of empathy, cruelty, inhumane laws and policies... No, 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 no. I'll take my Aunt Gladys any day, anytime, anywhere over all of that. And you and I will take Christ even above her. For in him, we find the gentleness to live our, our days. 
Maybe that's why Paul put this word in such a valuable list. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.